right, let's, uh, let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. It's John 11, beginning at verse 6. I'll be reading verses 6 through 16. John chapter 7, 11, beginning at verse 7. I'm going to stop saying the numbers. I'm just going to say them once. John chapter 11, beginning at verse 6. So, I hear the word of God. When he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in that place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Amen. So far, we've seen in this chapter... Uh, that uh, a particular situation is going on, right? Jesus finishes preaching in Jerusalem, and now he heads north because they just tried to take him so that they might stone him, the Jewish leaders. And Jesus hears word that from Mary and Martha that Lazarus is not well. He's at the point of death. And Jesus says to his disciples, and these are there are three... There are three points, I think, that, that um, three truths that John wants us to grasp. And the first is that this particular illness and what's going to result of it is for the glory of God. You see that in verse 4. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So that's first, and that's general. The disciples are going to see that, and everybody from that region who knows Lazarus is going to see it. The Jewish leaders will see it, and it will cause them, when they see the glory of God, what it will cause in them is hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to kill him even more, and they even want to kill Lazarus. You find that out in chapter 12. But for the believers, it's a revelation of the glory of the Son by what he accomplishes. But next, it's, to, it's intended to strengthen the faith of his disciples, what he does. And that's in verse 15. He says, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. 
The third we'll see next week, which is really love. So the glory of God, the faith of the disciples, and really the love of God for his people. First thing I want to note here as we look at verses 6 and following. God chooses to deal with his people in very mysterious ways. Note it from the passage. Verse 6. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in that place where he was. You would think, right, that Jesus hears that this man whom he loves is not well, that God would come immediately and heal him, raise him up from the dead. But what we have to remember is that we are on God's time. Lazarus was in God's time. Now, Lazarus, there was a particular purpose so that in, in the history of the world, after this event, it would be recorded in this word and that it would be a revelation of the glory of God and an exaltation of his son by doing this. This particular truth is intended to strengthen the faith of believers and to show them that even in the midst of difficulty, God loves his people. But all of these things are done in God's time. The disciples don't decide. Not at all. He's going to go again into Judea. Even though they wanted to stone him. But he's going to wait two days. Now we talked a little bit about this last week. Why this was the case. Then there would be four days. Four days would be enough time from the time of his death uh, till Jesus raises him for any kind of tradition. The Jews did have a tradition. They believed that for three days the spirit of a dead person hovered over their body so that within those three days, and you have to remember, you know, their medicine wasn't very sophisticated. um, I don't know if you know how women would give birth during those times. They would basically hold a rope and bang a rock with their bottom. Until the baby came out. So very, very little sophistication. So sometimes people could get uh, very sick and you would think they were dead. They'd stick them in a tomb. And a few days later, somebody's knocking on that rock. Give me some water. (laughs) I'm better. I woke up. Um, So many reasons. So Jesus delays to ensure that he is dead. And it's a little, well, I, I don't know. Up here, it's a little warm. Maybe a little warm down there. But if you think about Israel, during this time of the year, it's relative, it, it's a, it was a little cooler because remember, this is, um, it's approaching winter, I believe, here. Oh, no, that was uh, two months previous. Yeah, that's right. Two months previous, it was winter time, and that's when the Feast of Lights had taken place. So very hot, very humid, and a dead body has been laying and not mummified. They didn't disembowel. They did nothing. They just wrapped the guy in some linen that smelled a little nice and put him in a Cave. So he was rotting for four days in that cave. And um, what does his sister say? Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> don't, don't, open that, don't open that cave. Jesus wanted to ensure that everyone knew for certain that Lazarus was dead. So he delays. And 
in our particular circumstance, the difficulties that we are going to through, sometimes it feels like they're never going to end. I've been going through this thing or working on this thing or suffering this for 10, 15, 20 years. Look, the Lord may take you to the grave by means of your illness. He may. He may deliver you on the way to the grave from that particular illness and something else takes you. But know for certain that God has a plan and a purpose for the difficulties that you're going through. It's not just the difficulty of Lazarus. You think of Martha and Mary, their brother died. And they knew that if Jesus had been there, he could have healed him. But Jesus waits. Because going through this ordeal is more important for their faith than being delivered from it. And many of the difficulties that we face in life are the same way. Going through them would be much better for us than not going through them. Our immediately prayer, of course, is always, Lord, deliver me from this thing. I want to get out of it. I don't want to be in this hard spot in my life. But our prayers should, if we're thoughtful, and once we're thinking, our prayer should be, Lord God, help me to glorify you in this thing, first and foremost. Christ, J.C. Ralph put it well, Christ never brings his people through any peril, but he accompanies them in it. And it is with them, and he is with them, even when they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's something that we have to remember. So, first, God is going to deliver Lazarus and release his sisters from their suffering on his own time. And that is the same way he continues to deal with, with us, his people. Now, verse 8, note the disciples' fear. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again? The way that they speak here is like uh, yesterday, but it's been about maybe two or three months since he left that region and is gone north. So the disciples are afraid, which is understandable. But their fear is so heightened They're doing something very similar to what Peter did with Jesus. And remember what Peter did with Jesus. He said, when Jesus told him that he was going to die in Matthew chapter 16, he says to Jesus, Lord forbid that you should die. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You have not set your things, uh, has set your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus has a particular purpose. He needs to go down. They need to go with him so that their faith might be strengthened. They did not believe, and usually this fear arises in our hearts for two reasons. Distrust. So something difficult happens in our life, and immediately we panic. I can't go through this. I can't do this. God, why would you do this? Because we don't trust the Lord as we should. We don't trust that he would be able to care for us through the midst of the difficulty. See, our mind, in our minds, as I speak, including myself, immediately 
We want to be out of the hardship and the difficulty. We don't want to be in it. But Jesus not only wants to bring them through that difficulty, he wants them to understand that as long as he's with him, then he's able to protect them. Because that, that's the next issue really is the reason why we panic when there's difficulty, the reason why we worry, stress ourselves out, is because we do not believe that God can protect us through the difficulty. You see, it's always this issue of faith, the weakness of our own faith. But we have to remember that our standing with God does not rest upon the strength of our personal faith. It really depends upon the object of our faith. Let's say, let's say you have, let's say you could weigh faith, right? And I've got 100 pounds of faith, and you've got 1,000 pounds of faith, right? And I put my 100 pounds of faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What do I get? Every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then you take your thousand pounds and you put your thousand pounds of faith on Jesus. What do you get? Every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's the same. You see, God is not measuring the strength of our faith, but, but granted, the strength of our faith will make us act in particular ways. And here, fear. Christ may lead us into situations and circumstances in which we don't want to be. But the exercise of our faith, patience and dependence upon God is something that Christ wants to work in us. He wants to work these things in his people. We should have that attitude David had, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, no evil. Nothing evil. He will not fear it. Why? Because of his own personal military strength and prowess? No. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And um, what's interesting is the rod and the staff weren't only for the wolves. Yes, they were for bashing the heads of wolves and banging bears in the stomach and all that kind of stuff you want to do with them. But they were also for cracking the sheep on the head every once in a while and pulling them out of danger. So that's something that we have to remember that Christ is here in the middle of life with us and he will walk us through those difficulties. He will protect us through those difficulties. He has promised to do that. Therefore, we should not fear. But now note, beginning at verse 8, uh, beginning, excuse me, at verse 9, Jesus answers them. And he says, and he answers them indirectly. He gives them an indirect answer. They say, the Jews ought to kill you. Why are you going to go? Let's, or let's not go. And Jesus gives them an indirect answer. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the night, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and uh, well, let me stop there. What's Jesus's point? Okay, part of the problem that we have is uh, when we come to this particular passage, passage is that in the Gospel of John, 
the theme, or it's called a motif, of light and darkness is repeated throughout the Gospel of John. So we'll read this, and immediately in our mind, we're thinking, theologizing this. Okay, what's the, what, what is the, th- but Jesus is just stating the obvious truth, right? Um, most of us could walk across that field and not stumble and fall right now, right? Because it's daytime. But now let's say Rick hadn't mowed that lawn in three or four weeks, and it was pitch black outside, and it happened to be raining too, so no stars, and it's just pitch black dark. You might stumble and fall in that field. And that's the point that Jesus is making. There is a particular time to labor and to work in this world, and that time for Jesus is now. Jesus often, uh, he, he repeats this to his, this particular truth to his disciples, that he came into this world with a particular purpose. I like how J.C. Ryle explains this um, indirect statement by Jesus two ways. The first is this, every man is immortal till his work is done. And that's fantastic. I think he captured it. That's the point that Jesus is saying is, look, the Jews are not going to be able to do anything to me until I accomplish everything my father has sent me to do. God's will is immutable. His purposes, nobody can stand in their way. And I am to go to Bethany to raise Lazarus. Let's go. We'll be okay. He has a longer definition. and Let me read it to you. He says also, are not the working hours of the day 12? You know they are, speaking generally. If a man on a journey walks during these 12 daylight hours, he sees his road. He doesn't stumble or fall because the sun, which is the light of the world, shines on his path. If on the contrary, a man on a journey chooses to walk in the unreasonable hours of night, he is likely to stumble or fall for want of light to guide his feet. It is even so with me. My 12 hours of ministry, my day of work is not yet over. There is no fear of my life being cut off before the time. I shall not be slain till my work is done. Till mine hour is come, I am safe, and not a hair of my head can be touched. I am like one walking in the full light of the sun. I cannot fall. The night will soon be here when I shall walk on the earth no longer. But the night has not yet come. That's the point. That's the point Jesus is making. And Jesus, of course, affirms this throughout the gospel repeatedly. Jesus tells his disciples, my hour has not yet come. Look at the end of chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 10. Um. Yeah, verse 39. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hands. Look at John 7 and verse 30. John 7 verse 30. Therefore, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. There it's pointed, it's, it's pointed out more dramatically. Why couldn't they put their hands on Jesus? His hour had not yet come. His hour to be 
crucified, the hour in which they could lay their hands upon him, the hour in which Judas betrayed him, the hour in which he would stand before uh, uh, um, a uh, kangaroo court, and the hour in which he would be beaten by those soldiers and hung on a cross. His hour had not yet come. Look at verse 44 of the same chapter. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. This is, in essence, Jesus says cryptically here what John says in other places. They couldn't put their hands on him. Why? It was not his time. And here we see the confidence that Christ has in his fathers. Excuse me, in his father. He has great confidence that the purposes for which he was put on this earth, he will accomplish. And simultaneously, he's teaching us to take advantage of the time that we have. You see, we don't know the mystery of God's will the way that Christ does. Or stated in another way, we don't understand how all of the details in our life are going to work out. One of us could die before Monday. You don't, you don't, your life is not um, guaranteed to you. You're not guaranteed another day, another hour. You're not guaranteed another year. Therefore, as long as we live in this world, we ought to be taking every opportunity to serve God. Now, uh, when we hear that language in the context of a church, you may be thinking I'm talking about evangelizing, and yes, that's applicable there. But even being a good father, being a good mother, being faithful sons and daughters, being a diligent employee at work, those things give glory to God. What does, what does Jesus say? He says, let your, sign, let your light so shine before men that they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And that light is not necessarily restricted to preaching the word. Yes, that's involved to doing evangelism, to doing church ministry, but to the whole person. We have whole lives and every aspect of our life should be so conducted in a way that it brings or it gives glory to God. This is how David puts it in Psalm 27. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Nobody, nothing. We shouldn't. We, we are though, if we're honest, right? We're like Elijah. We're on top of Mount Carmel, mocking pagans. You know, heathens are cutting themselves and bleeding. And uh, I'm pouring, we're pouring water on, on this fire and on this altar and calling down fire from heaven. And the thing catches on fire and we call for rain and God brings it, right? We're just amazing hilltop experience, mountaintop experience for Elijah. And then Jezebel says, I'm going to kill this crusty prophet. And what does he do? He goes and hides in a cave. He's afraid for his life. We have to remember that we can have the same confidence, not because we know the future or even the outcome of every decision we make. We don't. And we, we have to be humble. We're finite creatures. We have to admit that before God and live in light of it. 
But we can have confidence, the same confidence, because we have and can know the will of God. We can know the will of God. It's in 66 books right here in front of you. What what does uh, David say in Psalm 1? In Psalm 1, as um, David opens the book of Psalms, we could also you could also do this, of course, with Psalm 119, and it'd be uh, profitable. And I have some notes, but that would take us way too long. But you could do the same with Psalm 19. Look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks, who, who lives his life, who governs his life, who structures his life, not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of, of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaves also shall not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Right? Why? Verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And he has revealed that way that we ought to walk in in this book. That is why Jesus had so much confidence. He knew the hidden will of God. He knew the hidden plans and purposes of God. He knew exactly what and when God wanted him to do something. We don't know that. But generally, we have the will of God here revealed. And we can have great confidence that we can know the ways of God. It's not a mystery. Walking in obedience to the commands of God. Now, next, look at how tenderly Christ speaks of the death of believers. Note, note this. And that heading comes right from J.C. Ryle. Look at how he speaks of the death of believers. He says in verse 11 of uh, John 11. Oh, excuse me. Yes, verse 11. These things he said... And afterwards, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Our friend Lazarus sleeps. He doesn't tell them he died. And this is a language that's used throughout the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see, you'll see this language used, sleep, uh, as a, a reference to death. And throughout the New Testament. Listen to Mark, Mark 5.39. This is when the little girl dies. And you have the people uh, at her father, her parents' house, weeping and crying. And Jesus says, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And again, in John 4, when a nobleman's son is uh, sick, Jesus says this. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. Oh, excuse me. That's a, that's a different uh, point that I'm going to make. And that is that Jesus doesn't have to go. Uh, But let me get back to it uh, shortly. So this is the language that's used throughout the New Testament to describe uh, death, particularly the death of a believer. The death of a believer is described this way. The second text was uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. And it, it says this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. This language, you know, because uh, that's what a believer does, right? Your body is laid in a permanent bed and buried in the ground, and you're resting. 
and your spirit ascends and enters into the presence of God. I think there's a little bit more here. Now, now I may just be inferring. I think it's a good inference. Is that, um, is sleep good? But ought sleep to be permanent? No. And that um, um, event, the death of a believer and his soul ascending into heaven ought not to be his permanent condition. It's going to be terrific, right? If let's say for some strange reason, we all died right now. And, you know, we believe in the Lord Jesus. So we all go, we'll be fantastically happy. We won't be sad. You're not going to be up there missing family and friends. You're not. You're going to have a perfect understanding of your own life, of your forgiveness, of your sin, but you won't be complete in that state. Because the ultimate state of man is uh, what God wants for his people is resurrection. When the soul and body are united and we live on a new heavens and a new earth. So I think Jesus refers to it this way because it's not our permanent habitation. But that's an inference. But he refers to it as sleep. And not only does he refer to it as sleep, he wants his disciples to know that he's just going to go wake them. This is how this is how easy it's going to be for Jesus. Right? He's just going to walk over to Lazarus and wake him up. Wake up, Lazarus. So then uh, we continue here. Verse, verse 12. Verse 12. Then his, uh, excuse me, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Then his disciples say, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Right? That's one of the worst things about having COVID-19 is not being able to sleep. Right? You're coughing, you got fevers, you're cold, uh, or any health issue, right? One of the difficulties is at times, especially if you're in a lot of pain and agony, they have to give you medicine so that you fall asleep, so that you can rest and heal. But his disciples are really just scared. That's ultimately the issue with his disciples. Look, he, if he's sleeping, he'll be fine. Leave him alone. We don't have to go down to, uh, to, to uh, we don't, excuse me, we don't have to go down to Bethany. He'll be okay. But Jesus knows his disciples, he knows their fears, and he makes it very plain to them. However, this is John's commentary. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. That's what the issue is. He's died. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Why is he glad? Well, as I had read before, with regards to the nobleman, when Jesus got word that Lazarus was ill, he could have just said, uh, go back home. By the time you get there, he's going to be better. Everything will be okay. He could have chose to deal with Lazarus that way. Lazarus, and these are important points here, Lazarus would, have, would not have died and his sisters would not have gone through the suffering and the pain of having their brother die. But Jesus, in God, in his wisdom, knew that going through this ordeal was more important for their faith than being delivered from it. 
And it is the same thing with us. So in John 4.49, the nobleman says to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son lives. So many believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went. The man believed the word Jesus spoke to him and went his way. And as he was going down, his servant met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. And he asked him what hour, and he knew it was exactly when Jesus said, Your son lives. So Jesus didn't have to go down if he wanted to save Lazarus, but he wanted Lazarus to die. And he wanted to put his power on display. This is what he was doing. Remember, the, this, this, is, this is what will strengthen the faith of the disciples. This sickness is for the glory of God. His death is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. God is going to receive glory, and the Son is going to receive glory. How? Because he is going to reveal that he has the power to give eternal life to the dead. He's going to do it physically to Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is not a resurrection. It's a resuscitation. Because technically what a resurrection is, is a, a raising to life eternal. And uh, Lazarus died again. Which he might, he, Lazarus, Lazarus might have been a little upset. Right? He, he wakes up in uh, the, the intermediate state. He's there with the Lord, Abraham, David. And for four days, he's having the best time of his life, literally. And then Jesus calls him back, you know? And he's like, well, what is going on here? But um, so he dies. But, but in raising Lazarus from the dead, what Jesus is doing is he is proving the point that he's made repeatedly that he can give men eternal life. He offers it and he can give it. So he puts that power on display and he does it with such ease. All he does is say, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes to life. Now, for many of us sitting in this room, that doesn't seem like a big deal because we could watch the Avengers on TV and we can watch Thanos pull a moon down from the skies and destroy a planet, right? We're, we're so given over to um, motion pictures and the drama of film. Like a lot of kids, if you talk to them about Jesus raising the dead from a tomb, it, they're not surprised, right? Because they're overstimulized and overly entertained. And that fictional world becomes a reality for them. But what Jesus did here is uh, more amazing than anything you can watch on a film because it really happened. A man was dead, rotting in the grave for four days, and Jesus restored not only his spiritual life, but the vitality of his physical life with a word. And that is how their faith would be strengthened by means of the work that Christ would accomplish among them. And that is the same way that your faith is strengthened too. The strength of um, uh, Christian people will, will, they'll agonize because they've not grown spiritually. But then whenever there's any kind of difficulty in their life, they don't do the will of God. They don't wait upon the Lord. They try to figure things out their own way. And then they wonder, why is it that they're not growing or spiritually maturing? And Christ here now does this work for their sake, for their good. 
that they may believe, not initially have faith, but so that their strength might be, the faith might be strengthened. The last part here is Thomas. Thomas. And Thomas is an interesting figure in the Bible, right? This is, we call him Doubting Thomas. He says, Lord, let me, you know, I got to put my fingers in those holes of the wounds if, uh, if you want me to believe. Well, I like Thomas's attitude. Listen to what he says. Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, there's a little bit of gloom and doom there, right? He doesn't believe that the Lord will be able to deliver him from this tribulation. But the Lord has just promised he will. He doesn't, tr- he, he doesn't trust as he ought. But he is willing to follow Jesus even into his death. And that is something that is very commendable. And Thomas is called the twin. The Didymus is the, if you have a King James Version, you'll see that Didymus. And the, that's a, in Hebrew, uh, it sounds, so he, uh, Thomas is Hebrew, Didymus is Greek, and the both words are from a root that means twin. So more than likely, Thomas had a twin brother, and he was probably the total opposite of Thomas. He was panicking all the time. But what this text shows us also is how different, how different Christian people can be. We're not all the same. We're not to be robots. Uh, Thomas had his own disposition. Peter had his own disposition. John had his own disposition. And they all dealt with difficulties and hardships in different ways. Thomas throws himself into obedience. Almost a bit foolish, right? But let's go die. Come on, as long as we're with Jesus, it's okay. There's a little bit of foolishness there and lack of trust in what Christ says. But um, there is a diversity in the body of Christ. Paul, of course, emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians, that the body of Christ is diverse. It's made up of people from all places, right? From, From everywhere in the world, from every language, from every tongue, But not only that, different dispositions and different characters. One person may deal with hardship one way, another person may deal with it another. But ultimately, what there must be is conformity to the will of God. Not uniformity, but conformity to God's will. And in difficult situations like this, one of the prayers of God's people ought to be this. Lord, help us to believe. Help my unbelief. Even in the midst of this difficulty and this trial, What we need more than anything else is to trust the Lord. And as God's people, we have nothing to fear, even when we die. Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. He says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? It doesn't exist anymore because Christ has put death to death by his resurrection. All right, brothers and sisters, well, in light of these things, let us pray to God and close. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here and to hear your word preach. I ask, Lord, that those things that are edifying and helpful for your people, that they would remember them. Those things that are not helpful, not clear, may they uh, forget those things, Lord. We come to you with great joy and with great gladness knowing that you, Lord Jesus, are the resurrection and the life, and that in you, we 
can and do have eternal life. Lord, we bless you and we thank you for this day. Amen.